Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so thrilled to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we are in this together, and thankfully, we have so many wonderful people we can call on to get the help and insight we need. So today, we're going to be discussing how to talk to your child about bedtime, sleep, getting through that bedtime battle and win. I know we all need it. How many parents can say me too when they hear a sleepy parent talk about how their child wouldn't go to sleep or woke up in the middle of the night? Many of us have dealt with this me included, even the other day, my own daughter has night terrors, nightmares, and I'm just not really tired kind of nights. Perhaps this has happened to you. It's not an easy scenario. Everyone's tired, maybe even overtired. And we as parents get stressed as we still have to get the dishes done, or we have to finish some work, or we just simply want to find time to relax and unwind after a long day. We clocked out at 8.30, but our kids are still working it. Aren't we lucky to have someone who can help us deal with this challenge today. So Dr. Natasha Bergert is a mom, pediatrician, blogger, educator, national spokesperson for the American Academy of Pediatrics. In her full-time suburban private practice, she strives to leverage the traditional values and teachings of medical science within today's digital health revolution. Her work with patients has been featured in outlets such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Parents Magazine. Perhaps you've seen it. She's also been highlighted on NBC Nightly News, CBS This Morning, and other local news programs. If she is not in clinic, you can find her on kckidsdoc.com, as well as Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I had the pleasure of being teamed up with Dr. Natasha for Education Nation's Parent Toolkit Twitter chat last May, so I know that she has incredible helpful tips that we can use right away in our families. We are so thrilled to have you, Dr. Natasha Bergert, on how to talk to kids about anything. It is great to be here and such a wonderful topic that I think everyone can use some sleep tips. So excited to talk about it. I agree. I agree. And before we get right on into it, for those who haven't had the opportunity and pleasure to meet you or read your articles or see you in your office, wow, that'd be great. Would you take a moment to just tell us what gets you up in the morning? What got you so interested in exploring the issue of kids and sleep and winning the bedtime battle? Without a doubt, every single day that I walk into my office, I see tired parents that are looking for solutions. Mm-hmm. And as a pediatrician, I, we, we know how important sleep is. It's so important for our growth and development of our kids, but it's so important for us. And so as more and more parents kept asking these questions, we've really honed in on how to find 
solutions to these really common problems so everyone can get a better night's sleep. Mm, Okay, so we're going to get into this today, and I know I've got parents shaking their heads. Yes, 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 as they're listening to you, because this bedtime battle is something that so many of us have dealt with or are dealing with, or we know we're going to be dealing with it. We know sleep is important for ourselves. We know it's important for our kids. I mean, who hasn't felt like utter garbage after sleep has gone awry, or we've got our productivity that's gone down, our moods are all over the place, our attention. Before we can solve this problem, though, could you help us to just understand first what normal sleep behavior is for toddlers, for preschool age, and for school age kids? Sure. So we know that sleep is a really dynamic process. We have to have a lot of things in place, a lot of environmental things clicking in in order to make this complex problem work. For most kids, not to get too sciencey, but there is sleep architecture of non-REM and REM sleep. And I'm sure most of your listeners have heard of this where we have non-REM sleep, but that's really where tissues get repaired and we grow and our hormones are pumping versus REM sleep where our brain is really active and we're dreaming. And no matter if you're a baby or a toddler or a teenager, you have to go through these sleep architecture cycles in order to get the work of sleep done. So for toddlers, that work happens in sleep cycles of about 90 minutes for a total of about 11 to 14 hours per 24 hours of the day that a toddler should be sleeping. Sleep requirements decrease as kids get older. So by the time they're school age, they need about a nine to 11 hours per day. So if you, that is a ton of sleep. And if you can imagine, that means about 40% of your childhood, you are asleep. Wow. That's how important it is wow. for our kids to get these hours. Okay, well, that is really important information, and I'm sure that some kids get less and some kids get more, but you got the sweet spot right there in the middle with 9 to 11 hours for school age and even more for our toddlers and our babies. You know, this bedtime battle, we, we just, we have to deal with it so often. You know, sleep problems are very varied for kids. Not everybody has the same issues. So what are the five most common sleep problems? The five most common that I certainly see in my office are really two behavioral problems, meaning these are coachable and workable problems with techniques we can use at home. Those include bedtime refusal or Mm -hmm. kids just refusing to go to sleep, having a lot of those check-ins before they go to bed, or the toddlers and the preschoolers and the school age kids that won't stay in their bed the entire night. So those are two of the most behavioral based problems I see. There's also three additional more medical type problems that I think are often ignored, Mm. but are very important. And when we're talking about disruption, and those are one you've already mentioned, what you experience with your daughter Mm. with those night terrors Mm -hmm. and sleepwalking and sleep talking. That's a big one. But we also think about sleep apnea, which also happens in kids, and restless leg syndrome in kids, which is often ignored as one of a, one of these common problems. Mm. Oh, yes. And my daughter, definitely, she's had the night terror. She's had sleepwalking. Uh, I've, seen, I've, I've seen sleep talking. My, my son has had sleepwalking as well. We're all over the place at night. But before <laughs> we go into the solutions to deal with these common sleep problems, because I would love to just get some tips on them, 
Let me first ask you this. We all know the importance of sleep. So it's understandable when parents get really frustrated that their child won't stay in bed or they're having these problems, they're up all night. Why are sleep problems so common in kids? I, you know, sleep, sleep problems are common because sleeping is a dynamic process. And these, and it's also, you know, I, I think if we're honest, I think that parents get in the way a lot of times for these normal processes to happen. We have our own behaviors in our home, our own values, our own techniques that we use that don't set kids up for success when we're talking about this complex situation that needs to happen for kids to get to sleep quickly and stay asleep for the whole night. I think we have a tendency to break sleep down into little tiny bits and parts. And those are the parts that we work on in our house without looking at the big picture. And so at the end of the day, we end up with this big ball of mess Mm. that maybe we didn't anticipate. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So can you give us an example of how somebody, a parent, could get in their own way and break the sleep down into these little pieces and and wind up actually causing more harm than good just because they have specific values that they want to follow. Sure. So, So a great example is what maybe your mom and dad or maybe grandpa and grandma did for you, and that is right before you go to bed, you need your milk and cookies. <laughs> you need a little snack, right? And so especially for kids with picky eating or something, that's a real sucker punch to parents that, oh, I'm hungry right before bed. Mm-hmm. So they give in to this acquiesce. The, the requests get a little bit more complicated, which which parents, after a, a tired day, just wanted to kids get the kids down, as, as we can all relate to. We acquiesce to these requests. But as a consequence to that, eating right before bed gives you heartburn and reflux. So now your kid's going to be not sleeping as well as they should be because of requests that they had. And so we may focus on maybe their lactose intolerance or maybe it's the cookies that I get before bed. But really, this becomes a reflux issue. And and now they're coughing at night and, and, and starting to have this more broad problem from what seems such a little simple ask right before bed. Oh, that is so interesting that that we can have these problems simply by following something that we used to do when we were little, you know, or, or somebody did with, uh, with us or our brother or sister did with their kids. It's so interesting how we can fall into those patterns. Uh, and I also know that sometimes I, I, this, I don't know if this is a rumor or if this is true, but isn't it true that when you eat like chocolate before bed, that that can also affect things? So if you're eating chocolate cookies, maybe that's compounding the issue? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Any sort of food and especially caffeine containing foods like chocolate are, are going to affect sleep. And it seems like such an innocuous, easy thing to do. And, and it's so associated in our culture with comforts and yes, love. Yes. And and so it seems so simple. But um, but sometimes we have to take a step back and look at the consequences of those and maybe maybe create loving alternatives to something that could cause a problem. What would be a loving alternative in that scenario? What would you suggest for somebody who's listening and going, oh, that's me? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 can, I completely relate to the kids that are not eating dinner. Yes. <laughs> I get that. Um, 
but we really do want to have a boundary of when we go for rest um, and and when we've eaten. So even if a kid hasn't eaten well, getting that extra snack in, that extra cheese stick, that extra apple, at least an hour or two before they lie down is going to decrease the complications of reflux or GERD-related disorders that happen when kids sleep. We have to remember that, that everything in our body relaxes when we sleep. That includes our insides too. We focus on our on our eyes and our brain and our body relaxing, but remember our guts do too, our stomach does, and, and everything relaxes. So if we go to bed on a really full tummy, we're really not going to feel well while we're sleeping. And so eliminating that part of the bedtime routine and substituting it with maybe a story or a hug instead, some comfort time instead, might eliminate that complication. Oh, what a good piece of advice. And, and just explaining, my kids are very, very interested in the explanation to problems and sometimes just telling them you know what I was listening to this podcast and this doctor told me you know if you eat before bed it actually can keep you up and it makes your gut work while you're trying to go to sleep and you know that having somebody sit there and tap you on the shoulder or tap you on the stomach while you're trying to go to bed it's going to be really hard to fall asleep. So, no, absolutely. You know, we could we can use your words and and make sure that people that our kids know the reason behind things. Sometimes that works. But let's go through those five most common sleep problems. And if you could provide some tips, like and and maybe even some scripts of what to say in the moment to our kids so that we can give some really much needed help to our listeners who are trying to cope with these problems, me included, and just want everybody to go to sleep. So if we could start with bedtime refusal and say, what are we supposed to do when our kids are just saying, I need a glass of water, I need this, but I can't fall asleep, I'm up, I'm feeling really energized, mommy, I, I want to run. What, what do you do in that scenario? Well, uh, well, we have to kind of keep keep in mind that, you know, they are unique. All of our, our kids are unique individuals mm-hmm. and they may not be on the same work clock or time clock that we are. So we have to be respectful. If bedtime refusal does happen occasionally, we would expect that to be normal. Bedtime refusal by definition is a one to two hour delay between when you put them to bed and when they are actually asleep. Mm. So that is what kind of our normal expectation should be. A good bedtime routine should be about 30 minutes. So if it's longer than that, you probably qualify for some of these techniques. I think really when we when we knock down all of the research, when we knock down all of the excuses, if we could say that, really the root of the problem of bedtime refusal is what happens at bedtime. And bedtime itself, like I said, should be about 30 minutes, but it also needs to be comprised with some sort of routine to get the body triggered into expecting that we need to sleep. One of the biggest pitfalls I see for some families is if you remember your infants, they go to bed at like six o'clock in the evening, dinner time. I remember my kids need falling asleep as a baby right in the middle of dinner time and sleeping really until 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. If you're putting a toddler down or certainly um, a preschooler down at 6 p.m., if you haven't changed that bedtime, <laughs> you're going to see bedtime refusal because they're not really tired. Right, right. <laughs> they're their sleep phase does shift as they get older. So we have to first look and modify. A lot of families are just putting their bed kids to bed simply too early. And so battling for an hour 
just because they shouldn't have gone to bed until seven o'clock to begin with. So first is looking at that sleep time, that bedtime. And then once you are secure that that's kind of the timing that works out with your family, make sure that you have a routine. The American Academy of Pediatrics talks about about um, taking a bath, kind of triggering that, mm-hmm. going to bed with a book, and then settling into bed for sleep. Again, about 30 minutes. Part of the success of that is it has to be consistent. It has to, it has to be a, an expected thing at night. And so how we talk to our kids about having these consistent times is we show them by example. We're talking to them by prioritizing that bedtime and that bedtime routine so they know exactly what to expect. If that expectation is different every night, you're going to start to hear the different excuses because one thing is different from one night to the last. Keep it the same. It's really the most important thing because then you create the habit and your body has that expectation that right now is the time for sleep. Right. So let's say that you get all your ducks in a row. You've prioritized your time. You've gone to the bedtime routine. And now 37 times later, they're asking for (laughs) water or they're scared or they want another hug. One common thing, there's two really great tools or techniques to try that I've used in my own house and recommended to my families. And the first is is called a bedtime pass. So once you get through your routine and your kids are all settled, I put for example, a little stuffed animal next to my son's bed. And that was his pass. If he really felt like he needed another drink of water, if he needed another hug, if he needed to get up and use the bathroom, he had the choice of turning in his pass whenever he wanted to. So he took his little bear, he come in to me, and he's trading it for that request. Mm. That, then after that request has been given, any other requests for another bathroom or to rub my back or sing another song are completely ignored. Mm -hmm. This technique is used to enable the child to have control of this situation that if they really are having some anxieties or if they're certainly if they really need to go to the bathroom, they do have a way out without having negative repercussions, but but it is setting a limit and setting an expectation by the parents to say you can get out once, but after that, you're kind of on your own. And that's worked really successfully for a lot of families, especially who kids who truly do have nighttime anxieties. Um, Another technique that you can use too for the kids who are refusing bedtime is called the excuse me drill. And that is when during that bedtime routine, periodically you are going to excuse yourself for a various number of reasons. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, I need to go buy a lottery ticket. You're going to leave for a few minutes, come back. Excuse me, I need to go do 10 push-ups. You're going to leave and you're going to come back. Excuse me, I need to go give dad a hug. I'm going to leave and I'm going to come back. And so as you're leaving and coming back, it's giving reassurance to the kiddo that you're not going anywhere. I can stay in bed and be okay. I don't have to ask for anything else. Mom's going to be back. And slowly over the course of the few weeks, as you excuse yourself, you're away longer and longer and longer until you excuse yourself and don't have to go back. Mm, Really interesting. I like that technique. I know with my own child, you know, my daughter is a little anxious at night and she just wants to know when I'm going to come and check on her. Like, when is it going to be? So if she goes to bed at 845 and I say, I'll be back at nine to check in on you, she's good. You know, it's just knowing Mm -hmm. that I'm coming back. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So 
So I think those two techniques are really nice because depending on the temperament and the behavior of your kid, you can decide, is this a kiddo that has a little bit more self-awareness and calmness and really just needs an out just in case, then a pass might be a better option. Or if you feel like some of that refusal truly is a little anxiety, anxiousness, a little bit of being frightened by being alone, separation Mm -hmm. anxiety, the excuse me drill is another way to kind of condition that behavior and and start to shorten that routine from a two-hour delay to a 30-minute kind of secure time there when you're in and you're out and you can get that bedtime work done. I bet you there are a lot of listeners taking a deep breath right now. Uh, Just having some really hands-on techniques that they can try tonight, that's going to be really, it's it's one of those things. We just want some solution, something to try and something that other people have tried and know that works. So thank you for providing that. Are Are those tips similar to what you would suggest for the not staying in their own bed. I mean, that's another behavioral issue. So what are what are some of the tips that you provide for that issue? Not staying in your own bed is is first to reassure the to reassure all of your listeners that this is also a normal behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and I also ask my parents when they come in come with this type of complaint is is not staying in their own bed is it really a problem? Mm-hmm. Um, because for a lot of families, it's not. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of families outside of the infancy period, if if a, if a preschooler happens to show up in your bed in the middle of the night, they don't particularly care mm-hmm. that they're that they're sharing a bed. And and I don't outside of that infancy period, I certainly don't as well. So so I think one of the kind of choices we have to make as a parent with wh- when we think about not staying in bed is, is truly deciding if this is if this is a problem. Because quite honestly, kids that kind of sleepwalk essentially into their parents' bed in the middle of the night really aren't having too much sleep disruption. It's Mm -hmm. not detrimental to their sleep, but it's really more is it detrimental to the parents' sleep. And that's something first you need to decide. So first decide if it is truly a problem and whether or not you want to work on it. So let's say say it truly is a problem Mm -hmm. that you've got a kid that's a mover and a shaker when they sleep and it's impossible to get sleep next to your kid. Um, I certainly have one of those myself. Unfortunately, this, you know, you're, you're going to hate me for this advice, but um, it's, you know, this is where we talk about the 100 walks, you know, and, and, and really this is, <laughs> there, there's no shortcut to the not staying in bed. There's really no gadget. There's really no app. This is old-fashioned hard work, and it's called 100 walks because it's 100 walks, and this is the classic stuff that we've heard from a, a million times before that if we see them in the middle of the night, we have a script that we say, for example, it's nighttime, I love you, I see. I will see you in the morning. And every time they come into your room, it's nighttime, I love you, I'll see you in the morning. And to walk them back to their bed. Mm. It's called the night of 100 walks for a reason. Mm. I think my record for one of my families was 133 times. Oh my goodness. Uh, one evening. But the good news to that is that after that it was 50, after that it was 30, and then after that she was sleeping in her bed all night long. Mm-hmm. So it is take it is making the choice to kind of take the pain as a parent and be ready to hit this really firmly and with volition so we can get this behavior changed. Um, if the night of 100 walks is, is, not, is not in your game plan, you can also talk about having an open door reward. So most kids, especially preschool or school age, 
most kids like to have their door open at least a crack. Yes. Um, yes. Having having a closed door, which I completely agree, will increase a lot of kids' anxiety. So consider that a reward. So if they stay in bed, their door can stay open. If they come out of their room, mm -hmm. then when they go back into their room, the door stays closed for one minute. Mm -hmm. You open the door, they're in bed, the door can stay open. Mm. If you open the door and they're still not in bed, now the door stays closed for two minutes. I'm going to wait until you get into bed. Uh, the, be the door will not stay open until you are in your bed. This is kind of the same mentality really as a sticker chart, but rather than having them earn something that's a little abstract in the middle of the night, this is instant reward for good behavior mm -hmm. by having that door open. Yes, it takes a lot of work. So does the 100 walks, but both of these techniques work really well and reasonably quickly in order to kid in order to get kids to stay in their own bed so interesting and I, I know that sometimes kids go through phases where they are getting out of bed and and it doesn't actually last long and sometimes we have kids that are doing this constantly and and parents are getting really frustrated I know that uh, with my own kids, there have been times when each one of them has had, you know, the series of days where they've been getting out of bed, who knows what was going on in their heads at that particular time. And one of the things that we did, because my, we didn't want my husband to roll over onto them, um, <laughs> was we put a, a sleeping bag underneath our bed. And if they came in really quietly and we, you know, barely didn't even know that they were there, they could take the, the sleeping bag from out from under our bed and get into their sleeping bag and sleep on the floor by our bed. Um, and it, it was one of the ways that we dealt with it. And it was probably like a three day long situation. And then it, it was done. So I think sometimes we have, you know, more of a chronic problem and we really need to do the, the night of 100 walks. And other times there may be a sh short term solution will do it. No, I, I completely agree. And I think the what is so beautiful about the technique that you used in your home too is you still maintained that boundary that the bed is for mom and dad. Mm -hmm. You were still accommodating to anxiety or yes. feelings or just having a couple of bad days and really giving your your child some control, but at the same time still parenting with that boundary that there is a limit. And that in turn you know, obviously showed your benefit. That's great. Thank you. I appreciate that because, you know, we're just working it like everybody else, hoping mm -hmm. we're doing the right thing. Um, so <laughs> speaking of that, we, we also have dealt with night terrors and sleepwalking in our household. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes it's really frightening. My daughter went through some incredible night terrors that scared the bejesus out of us. And my son has gone through some <laughs> sleepwalking that made us laugh uncontrollably because, I mean, it's ridiculous some of the things he's done in the past. So I, I would love to find out from you, I mean, are there solutions to this? Or what are you supposed to do when your children are having night terrors or sleepwalking? No, I think that, well, first of all, you've brought together a, a really important point, and that is that sleepwalkers, sleep talkers, and night terrors are genetic. Mm -hmm. So you have got it on the family tree somewhere. You have to anticipate that um, your children might be susceptible to this uh terrifying issue at times certainly terrifying. my yes. I, still, I still have very vivid memories of my own brother when I was a child having sleep terrors at night and being horrified so I I haven't experienced that with my own children but as a child I still remember it um uh night terrors are when kids wake up super agitated and confused they act crazy they're mm, loud they so loud. they appear to be awake but they're really not they're in a very active phase of sleep and and, and um 
and a certain phase of sleep uh, that really causes alarm for the entire family. Typically, sleepwalking, sleep talking, and night tears, they occur in the first half of the night, typically. And for some kids, especially the, those that do it really routinely, parents can almost tell me within a 15-minute kind of window of when that event is going to start. Mm-hmm. So... We, we know that these type of behaviors are uh, increased when kids are have inadequate sleep. This happens after really stressful days or if they've been at a sleepover or they've been at grandma's house where something about their sleep has been disrupted for a few days prior, that's going to increase the probability that a night terror sleepwalking is going to happen. So your first thing is just to make sure that as best you can, try to make sure that your kids have adequate sleep. Um, and I've had a couple of families really successfully use the 30-minute waking technique. So for kids that have these problems very routinely, it happens in a in a specific sleep cycle. So if you knock them out of that sleep cycle, the event won't occur. Mm. So for example, if you know that night terrors are going to happen at 1130, give or take, what you can do is go into your child's room at about 11, kind of rummage them on the shoulder, tap them a little bit, get them to blink their eyes a couple of times, get them out of that sleep phase that they're in, and essentially they will sleep through what would have been um, what would have been a night terror sleepwalking event. People have been wise to this. There's actually apps you can get. There's actual little devices that you can get that do these scheduled wakings for you um, and little and will vibrate underneath a pillow mm. that, that will do this for you in order to eliminate uh, these events. They, are, they certainly are alarming when they happen. Kids have no recollection of them in the morning. That's a big clue as far as the difference between a nightmare and a night yes. terror. Um, uh, and they can easily go back to sleep once they occur. It's just the people who've been trying to console them usually stay awake for the rest of the night. <laughs> yes, yes. That's, it's, it is unbelievably terrifying to uh, see your child sitting up in bed, looking straight at you and shouting at the top of yes. their lungs. The first time it happened, I remember my husband got a baseball bat because my child was screaming, somebody's in my room, get out, get out. And, uh, and he's like, running in there. You know, it's, it is unbelievably terrifying. And, and yes, it is on the family tree. We actually adopted both of our kids and have an open adoption. So we're able, <laughs> able to find out this information. And um, our kid's birth mom, a lovely person who's definitely had disrupted sleep and sleep talks and has, you know, been sleepwalking and had said, has said some very odd things in her sleep. So we had that. We knew that this could possibly happen. And it's happened in different ways for both of our kids. So, yes, um, we did realize that if we made it so our daughter was wearing like very light clothes you know, something that, you know, like she just wears like little shorts and a, and a tank top to bed and just uses a sheet, she's much, much less likely to have those. Just oh, interesting. interesting. She overheats. Yes. Interesting. And, and, yeah. I thought it was really interesting too. It worked. It worked. Yeah. Awesome. So what about the sleep apnea and, and restless leg syndrome? You know, we're talking, this is really very medical, right? What, what, yeah, what this- do we do about that? This is very medical, but I think when, when you know, we're getting together on our mommy blogs and we're talking at the, about the playground, we, we talk about we talk about the bedtime refusal. We talk about those night wakings entirely as a behavioral problem, mm. and we can't ignore that 
three to five-ish percent of kids have either restless leg or sleep apnea that is causing what is perceived to be a behavioral problem. Mm -hmm. So if you can treat the sleep apnea or you can do something about the restless leg, that's going to be a more effective plan for you than doing the night of 100 walks. So... Um, so sleep apnea, I, I've got quite a, a, quite a few kids in, in my practice that have been diagnosed with sleep apnea actually. And that's where we, where just classically, like you hear about in adults where you have airway obstruction during the night when your body really relaxes and that leads to sleep fragmentation. It cuts that 90 minute cycle of REM and non-REM sleep. It cuts it too short. It mm-hmm. cycles too quick. And so what happens is in addition to having other cardiovascular and, and physical problems, which we hear about in kids, what we see is behavioral problems during the day, daytime sleepiness, maybe even learning problems or behavioral problems or hyperactivity because they've never really gotten into those restful, deep parts Mm. of the cycle. Um, Most commonly, about 50% of the kids sleep apnea is associated with snoring. Um, and that's mm-hmm. commonly what I hear. My kid snores when they sleep like a chainsaw. <laughs> Can we get their tonsils taken out? Um, so mm-hmm. that, that's kind of a slam dunk. That's an easy thing to think about. But some of my kids with sleep apnea presented just with frequent night wakings. They were just mouth breathers or labored breathers. They would gag in their sleep. Mm, Some kids just complain about sore throats in the morning. Some get night sweats. Mm. Some wet the bed instead of when they when they have when they have hypopnea. So there's other clues that that outside of snoring that can lead to this diagnosis. Now, of course, if you have big tonsils, you got big adenoids, uh, we take it out. uh, For kids over the age of three, we don't need a sleep study. A good old-fashioned iPhone video of your kid snoring will usually do the trick to get that that taken care of. Hmm. For other kids that have sleep apnea and don't have big tonsils, really nothing significant to remove by our friendly ENTs, um, a lot of people will recommend nasal steroid sprays like Flonase or mm-hmm. uh, Nasonex that decreases adenoid tissue back there and s- snoring resolves the sleep apnea revolves, mm-hmm. uh, results. It works beautifully. Um, but I think what's important for listeners not only to know is not, not only can the sleep apnea be the cause of some of these night wakings and some of the reasons that our kids are not staying in their bed and they're coming into our rooms, but we also have to remember that sleep is really involved in behavior and learning. And I would, I would, I would suggest, especially to listeners, that if that that ADHD and uh, sleep apnea are increasingly being related in literature. And so if your kid might have a diagnosis of a behavioral learning problem or certainly hyperactivity or inattention, think about, do they snore? Think about mm. these other things that, that might be sleep apnea because if you fix the sleep apnea, kids get better rest, they, ha- they are better with attention, less hyperactive, and, ha- and some of the behavioral problems go away. Wow. Oh, my goodness. I, I think that there's light bulbs probably going along everybody's head there um, because, you know, these are important, important realizations and um, you might just have solved some people's problems. That's great. What about that restless leg syndrome that you talked about? Is that something that um, we would see, obviously, and, and just bring them into a doctor? Yeah, um, this is interesting. Restless leg in kids is also called periodic leg movement disorder, very similar to what you hear in adults. But this would be this. What's interesting about restless leg is these are fidgy legs or leg pain right around bedtime. So these are going to be part of the bedtime refusal kids mm. that that need to get up. And what's interesting is 
for some kids, especially preschoolers, they don't really tell you that their legs are tingly or they feel fidgety. They just say, I need to get up. Mm. And so when you walk around, by definition, having restless leg, when you walk around, that feeling of pins and needles or your legs feeling hot or cold will resolve. And so with kids that are keep getting up, mm. keep getting up, keep getting up after after you put them to bed, those are the ones that I think about, well, maybe this is restless leg. Maybe this is, is not a behavioral problem. So some kids will say their legs tingle. Some kids will have leg pain. Classically, parents will say, oh, they're just growing pains. Let's mm -hmm. give them some ice and put them back down, right? We've all yes, done I, that. Yes, I think, I think I'm guilty yeah. of saying those yeah, yeah, words. Yeah. Yes. So, one, one question to ask is before you reach for the ibuprofen, have them walk around their room. Does it feel better if they walk around the room? If it's a growing pain, it does not get better. They still need that ibuprofen. If it is restless leg, if they walk around and they feel better, that's going to be the light bulb above my head saying, well, maybe this is something besides growing pains. Um, there really is no test in kids for restless legs. This is a clinical diagnosis. But what's really interesting, what I find fascinating, is that you can check a ferritin level. It's a lab test, a blood test that you can test in these kids. And it, and it gives you a level of your iron storage, not if you're anemic or not, but actually the storage, your reserve of iron that you have in your body. And if ferritin levels are really low and you give these kids that have restless leg symptoms iron supplements, the symptoms go away, which I think is absolutely mm -hmm. remarkable. Mm -hmm. um, another thing and another tip too is for these kids that have these symptoms, they, it really gets it really gets amplified if they've had caffeine. The mm -hmm. the sensations in their legs really get it, get um, riled up, and it also increases. Uh, you'll see this as a complication of kids that are on a medication class called an SSRI. These are commonly used for antidepressant or anti anxiety meds. Um, that will also increase the probability that they have restless leg-like symptoms at night. So if you're seeing sleep disruption at the beginning of the night after starting those medications, this is what I would be thinking of. Um, for some of those kids who really need those medications, they're important in a lot of kids, and we don't want to see that side effect. Sometimes um, families will offer, offer also melatonin. That yes. will help kids with restless right. leg melatonin the increasing research is really debated um there's some really great links with really good information for parents to read i'll put that on the blog too for parents as a reference um so they can read that and make their own decision if that might be a solution for them excellent oh my goodness we have so many tips coming our way and i, I just want to underscore that something you said that this may be a medical issue not a behavioral issue and and to look beyond what the obvious thing is and and maybe ask yourself are some of these other things happening that you've outlined. But what about the person that has said, you know what, I've tried everything. I've, I've done it all. But my kid <laughs> still will not sleep through the night. What, what do you say to those people? <laughs> um, I, I hear that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, I think I kind of ask first questions. Well, first, for, uh, first, I'll ask you, Dr. Silverman, how long does it take to, to really establish a habit? How long would you say? 21 days. 21 days for an adult. For a kid, it can take up to 100 days, yes, right? Yes. So we have to remember that sleep is a discipline. Sleep mm -hmm. is a habit. And so training techniques, do. this is hard work. This is the hard work of parenting. And so if you've tried everything, 
have you tried long enough? That's my mm. first question. Number two is a lot of times during sleep training, kids have something called the extinction burst or two to three weeks after you've tried a particular technique, all of a sudden they realize that the rules have changed and this is a permanent issue here. Mom <laughs> and dad are not playing around. Nobody's playing. And, <laughs> and so the tantrums will increase. The refusals will increase. The nighttime, night of 100 walks will be at the night of 200 walks. Mm. It will really amp up. And it's that point that parents will do a 180. They'll try a different technique. Yes. They'll try something different. And now we're back at square one yes. again. Now we're, now we're at day number one instead of day number day number 14. Yes. So that's the second thing I ask is, is, is this just you've gone through it. You're not going past that extinction burst. That's a big pitfall. Mm -hmm. And finally is consistency. I know we've kind of touched on this before, but there's a reason that we love to see likes on Facebook. There's a reason that we love Candy Crush. There's a reason that we love Angry Birds. And that is because it gives us intermittent positive reinforcement. We keep going back to that phone to see if we get a prize. And so if you are not consistent, this in bedtime, as in with many things in parenting, if you intermittently say yes, if you intermittently mm. give in, that is a very positive reinforcement of those behaviors. So plan to be consistent. If you are not consistent, and I mean that being mom, dad, grandma, babysitter, mm. nanny, all of the caregivers, because if there's a weak link, these techniques will not work. So for the parents who've tried everything, have you tried long enough? Have you tried to push past the extinction burst? And are you being consistent? Mm. And I think within those three questions, the vast majority of the time we'll find our answer. Oh, those are really important questions. We should print those out and put them up around our house. I think that's a great, great idea because if you're not consistent, if you can't push through, if you, you know, feel like you, you, if you really are honest with yourself and you say, you know what, I've only tried this for a short time, we're not going to get anywhere. And, and I love what you said about that. It needs to be across caregivers. I mean, how many times does, you know, grandma or the babysitter or somebody, you know, coming in, you know, maybe dad and mom even do yeah. different things. So, you know, certainly if you have a divorced household in two different households, you know, people might do things differently. So that's, that's an important thing to put on the table. So now is the time for top tip. So what piece of advice would you offer to all parents as they're working through sleep problems at home? What is your top tip? Top tip is that bedtime does not start at bedtime. Mm. We really have to prioritize sleep in our house. This is something that is not valued by our society, but is critical for the entire family. And what I mean by that is, is you can't just hit bedtime, breeze through it without thinking about it and expect perfect sleep in your kids. You really have to plan your evenings. You have to dedicate that time. You have to have a routine. You have to be consistent. And that takes planning, especially for a busy household like mine with two working parents. It takes planning and priority in order to get to a place where you can have a successful bedtime. So you can't just start thinking about bedtime when it's time to turn the lights off. And if I could just add one yes. Or a little Please. mini tip as a, with my pediatrician hat on and my mom hat on <laughs> there's there's absolutely no reason believe me I have heard them all there is no reason to have TVs or electronics in those bedrooms yes. and so for for young kids 
just keep them out. Don't ever get them in there. If you've got school-age kids, get them out. If you've got teenagers, get them out. You will never be faulted for the quality of sleep you get for ourselves and our kids if we get those electronics out of the room. Mm, so, oh, man. You know, I think that that's one of those um, tips that is hard to hear for some people. You know, they start, if they yeah. have electronics in their kids' rooms. Um, and and it's also one of those things that, that results in something positive when we take them out. I, I, nobody's ever going to say, I wish we put in some more electronics into your room. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so give us the resource of the week. Where can people find out more about you and your articles and, and all the great work you're doing? Uh, I'd love for your listeners to check out kckidsdoc.com. That's my website where I'll, I'll put put all sorts of interesting things about common parenting problems that I see in my suburban practice. But more importantly, I'm going to put some of my favorite links to my favorite videos and top uh, concerns about sleep on the site so you can link out from Casey mm-hmm. Kedstock and find some of my friends. Oh, that would be enormously helpful. This is a topic that can be very challenging for parents. And I know that having you on the line today has just been really comforting to so many people. You've provided so many tips and and great scripting of exactly what to say. You know, when your child walks into the room and, you know, you could say something like this and then bring them back. All those little nuggets are so helpful. And I, I really just love what you said about asking yourself these three questions and seeing is it a medical issue or is it behavioral? All those all those little little touches that you gave today, I think will make a real difference. So thank you so much for being on How to Talk to Kids About Anything. My pleasure, Dr. Silverman. Thank you. Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends, I know you have yours. Let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. Let's go to facebook.com slash Dr. Robin Silverman, or let's chat about it on drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash Dr. Robin. And if you love this podcast and who would not love this information, so useful, so helpful for so many people, please, would you kindly go up to iTunes, rate and review it and allow other people to know about it. Pass it on. You know that there are parents who need to hear these words from our fabulous guest, Dr. Natasha Bergert. I really appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even when it seems like nothing is going right and your kid keeps getting out of bed, we all have those days. You've got this. You're here. You're getting the information you need, the information that works, the information from people you can trust. And on the days we fall short, never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. I get it. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, our sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. been listening to how to talk to kids about anything with dr robin silverman for more information on books articles speaking engagements or curriculum please visit drrobinsilverman.com